Welcome to Idol Weekend. I'm Danielle Riendo, and I'm here with my co-host Rob Zachney on the newest podcast from Idol Thumbs. So 2015 is in the books, Rob, and it is time for us to come and talk about our favorite games and favorite memories for this year, and what a year it was, Rob. What a year it was indeed. Yeah, and... You know, as we were preparing this topic, uh, I, I was sort of lo- I was sort of going back through uh, my uh, review journal that I sort of keep. Uh, it's a notebook full of stuff for everything I was just playing uh, through, throughout the year. I was going through old episodes, of three moves ahead, and uh, you know, it's 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 funny because it's terrible. At the end of every year, I, I forget basically everything that came out in the first four months of the sure. year. We all do, yeah, yeah, <laughs> and so like. I think obviously, like probably my my favorite game of the year and like my favorite experience was The Witcher Three, but I, but I've talked about that quite a bit. And I don't feel like I, I need to belabor the point any more than I have. Uh, sure. But yeah, I I, I think uh, I I just had a lot of really amazing uh, experiences with with these games that I I think ended up just getting a little bit forgotten either because they were too. Uh, you know, they they were too genre specific, uh, or or they may have just been a, a little too a little too oddball, or maybe they just came out uh, too early. And, and so and so, I think one of the one of the games that really uh, stands out for me this year, and is definitely this is in no particular order. Uh, so I'm just going to sure, be sort of sure. talking about stuff uh, stuff I absolutely loved. Uh, Clay's Invisible Ink was yeah. just an absolute favorite of mine this year. It's this it, it's this stealth take on XCOM. That just sort of like oozes cool, right? It's got this, it's got this great art style uh, where every, every it, it looks a bit like uh, an episode of of Archer crossed with uh, Blade Runner. Perfect. Um, so yeah, yeah it's it, it's sort of like <laughs> '60s like neo futurism uh, in some ways. But the cool thing is, unlike an XCOM, say where you can. Uh, where you can always just sort of kill the bad guys and resolve the mission that way. Um, Invisible Ink really like every direct conflict maneuver you can make basically starts a countdown before something's going to go terribly wrong for you. <laughs> uh, and, yeah. and so a lot of a lot of the game just just becomes about uh, sort of not breaking cover and sort of making like navigating your squad uh, through these levels and using your tools to create distractions so you can completely like ghost in and out of these levels. Uh, so I mean that just that just ended up being one of my absolute favorite games of the year. Uh, and I, I, I just I, I kind of it seems like I don't see a lot of people talking about it, and I, I kind of wonder if that's because it's it's you know st- like tactical turn based people and then stealth people. Those are two subgenres basically. They're two <laughs> sure. fairly like niche genres, and I, and I wonder how many people have really uh, ha- have really heard about this one or or given it a shot. Yeah, I'm actually a little sad about that one as well because I I may have missed it and I, that makes me sad because I do love stealth games and I love clay games in general. I you know Don't Starve is one of my favorite games of the last few years. I, and uh, man, I, I Mark of the Ninja, hell yeah, that's an amazing game as well. So I feel bad that I missed this one and I feel like that is going to be uh, a, a refrain that we might hear a few times from me during this podcast, because even though I think I played more games this year than maybe any other year, uh, I didn't finish all of the games that I played this year. And I feel like I did a lot of tasting and yet I still missed uh, some of the really great games because this was, this was just a year where there was a hell of a lot of really good stuff. I mean, really across all genres, sizes, you know, whatever, there was a lot of really, really great stuff out there. Um, You know, I, I don't believe that 2014 was a bad year for games the way a lot of uh, a lot of people said it was. They're wrong because there were great games last year, but this year there was just like it was almost too many awesome games. Like I feel bad for not playing Invisible Ink. I feel bad for not playing several things <laughs> basically. I have not but... I've still not played Life is Strange. Oh man. Oh, still Rob. I I oh, it's okay. That is one of my games, though. So <laughs> it's it's one of my top ten. I actually made a top ten list because I had to. The way we vote at Polygon, um, you know, we we basically have a weighted system for you know your number one choice gets ten points, your number two choice gets nine points. So I had to actually like spend a good four hours one day right before sort of hitting the send button for the sort of order of my games yeah. that I that I wanted to to send in. I guess I'll go in like descending order or actually ascending order and 
you know, Life is Strange, not my number 10 or anything, but uh, definitely on my list. So I will spare you because apparently everybody has told you to eat your vegetables. No, but no, but I'm, I'm totally up to actually discuss <laughs> the game. We talked around it a few times. Okay. Uh, so now okay. I actually like, I have not played it yet, but I'm curious what made this game so special. Uh, the things that made this game special were sort of the same thing that that made, uh, well, not exactly the same thing, but it was the same sort of vibe that made Gone Home feel special to me, which was, this is a kind of personal story about a, a teenage girl that I really sort of related to. Now, no, I, I don't have time travel powers, unfortunately, and... You know, I didn't go to the coolest high school in the universe, which this place seems like maybe a cooler place than I went. I went to Catholic school and it sucked, but, you know, it's okay. Um, it just feels really personal. And that that's awesome in a game that is also kind of a video game-ass video game where there are puzzles and, you know, story choices and big dramatic things happening and beached whales and time travel and holy shit. So many things <laughs> kind of going on that are, you know, like weird, big, melodramatic, fictional things. It's like happening. magical realism kind of game? Oh, totally. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I, I would say definitely. Because like beached whales, I'm like, okay, so how's that? <laughs> that seems like Oh, weird yeah, plot. those beached whales were, were in a hurricane or something. Yeah, it's it's very, you know, there's a lot of elements of the fantastic in this game. Uh, so, so what I loved about it was that it, it had those elements of the fantastic, but it also felt like a really personal kind of love story. Um, it depends how you play it, certainly. Uh, but but sort of the relationship between two of the characters in this game is what sold it for me, what made me just fall in love with it. And it made me, you know, sort of play the whole thing. I played, I think I played all of it on a stream. So somewhere there's me, you know, getting up in arms about every little plot thread and, and anything that wasn't perfect in the game. And also the things that were really special about it. But whenever I kind of have that much of an emotional reaction to a game, I, I'm like, all right, this is, this is something. They've got something here. This is definitely special. Um, so I really don't know, uh, if you will like Life is Strange, Rob, but I, I know that I did and it was, it was a special little experience for me and I know it was for a lot of people. And this is definitely, I talked about this when I was on Idle Thumbs all the time, but the Neo Endearment crew on Twitter, you know, folks who are like really kind, sweet people who really like endearing things got super into this game and I am definitely among those ranks a lot of the time, and and this was maybe the game I felt the most among those ranks <laughs> with, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I I completely get that, and it, it I think it probably is my kind of game because I do I, I do enjoy these sort of uh, <laughs> these sort of smaller, more like personal stories, right? Or where the stakes yeah. are personal. Uh, it, it's it's sort of I don't know, maybe maybe there is maybe maybe there is some kind of world like ending threat in in that game but it doesn't sound like that's doesn't sound like it it's it sounds like it's more about uh like like teenage life uh is that fair to fair to say it, it can it conflates the two basically okay. there there is a a big you know dramatic sort of supernatural thing going on as right. well but it feels like it, it's the way that sort of good episodes of buffy always kind yeah. of felt like it's all metaphor yeah. for yeah Exactly, and which I know is a little bit of a cheesy thing to say, but if it's done well, it works, and I and I personally think it was done well here for yeah. sure. Yeah, uh, no, it's it's something I'm definitely uh, e eager to try out. Um, you know, it's something I've been playing a lot lately. Uh, yeah, and I, I it's one of those games that's sort of been on my hard drive now all year, and so I think I kind of have to acknowledge it as maybe one of my <laughs> favorite games of this year, uh, despite it never really like. I never had a moment with this game where I was like, "This is amazing. This is this is definitely <laughs> one of the best games of the year." It's just it's just always good, uh, and that is Dying Light. Oh, okay. So Dying Light, if, if you haven't played it, and I was really sort of cynical about it because it was a zombie parkour game. Yes, and it really seemed like they were like the developers were sort of taking two trendy things in, in, in games and sort of slamming them together and and sort of you know calling it job done. Uh, but I, you know, it's it's done really well, and and Dying yeah. Light just what makes it so good for me is that Dying Light is really about outrunning your enemy. Like if you're fighting, oftentimes you're losing. There's there's a few times where you have no choice but to fight, but by and large, you just have to keep uh, fleeing. And that's especially sure. true at night uh, when the city gets especially dark. And this is why it's called Dying Light. Uh, there's a day-night cycle. And by day, you've got sort of run-of-the-mill everyday zombies. 
A lot of them are not terribly dangerous. You know, beat them to death with a shovel, you know, no problem. <laughs> uh, but at night, you've got sort of these, like, predators uh, out there that are, that are sort of super hunters. And obviously, your vision is impaired. Uh, and it just gets a lot more dangerous at night. It turns into much more of a high-stakes uh, stealth game. And the thing is, when you are fleeing from a mob of enemies, especially if you've got one of those hunters uh, on your case... There are so many things your mind is racing to try and figure out simultaneously. Like, Because on the one hand, you're frantically trying to read the map in front of you. So when you and I have talked about racing games in, in the yes. past and, and sort of the way you sort of fall into that feeling of flow and that, like everything sort of is gone uh, from, from your mind, that happens here because you just become hyper aware of the structure of the level around you. Uh, and it, the game has taught you, like, you can grab on this kind of ledge, but that one you can't. And this is the kind of jump you can make. And here's, but the, if you if you jump here, it'll slow you down because the landing won't be clean and speed is life. Uh, and so it's just, Dying Light is this concentrated adrenaline shot at times where you're just running from for your life in just god-awful terror. And you know the monsters are behind you. And you can't turn around, you can't look. And all you can do is just try not to think about it <laughs> and focus on running as fast as you can. But also, while you're doing that, be looking for a way to escape this chase. Because your character does run out of energy. You get tired, you slow down. And so you're, you're, you're sprinting to, to make your escape. But then you're also looking for a way to sort of duck to safety uh, and, and not get instantly cornered and, and killed. And so Dying Light serves that up again and again because it's kind of an open world. And so every day you go out and you get your supplies and you head out into the world and start scavenging and fulfilling missions. And sometimes it goes perfectly and you start to feel like you're totally the, um, you know, you're the master of that environment. You're the, you know, you're the, you know, you're the, you're the hunter in the jungle, basically, who, who knows everything and, and yeah. has, has learned how to survive and become a predator in that environment. And every, just as you're starting to feel really confident, then you'll have one of those runs where the game just yanks the rug out from under you <laughs> and basically puts you on the back foot and says, okay, when you're in charge of how you fight the enemies or, or, or your route, yeah, you can, you can do whatever you want. But how good are you at thinking on your feet? How do you, how do you handle disadvantage? <laughs> and it just gets, it, it gets absolutely tremendous. And it doesn't hurt that... It's got some really good zombie killing. Um, yeah. There's the, 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 the combat is by and large uh, mostly melee. And so there's this real sense of weight to the weapons. And it, it like a bit like another one of my favorite games, uh, Zombie U uh, on the oh, Wii U, yes. which also came out, I think, for PC this year, but I haven't played that port. Uh, but there's this sense of if you fight, if you're fighting a bunch of zombies, like the, the worst thing is just they're hard to kill. They take a lot of hits no matter what you've got. And so your character slowly starts to like gasp and wheeze and your swings become weaker and you can't block attacks. And uh, yeah, it, it's everything about Dying Light is just is just really well made. It's, it's a pretty simple game. I don't think there's a, I don't think there's a huge like deep message to Dying Light, uh, but, you know, it doesn't need it because it just it just creates all these really intense, memorable moments. And, uh, you know, I just I keep going back to it throughout the year. That is the sort of game I, I would love to play exactly that in a sort of VR with a treadmill setup and actually be running and jumping and doing all sorts of things in the physical world because I'm a, a crazy person, but also that just sounds like a really fun, intense <laughs> sort of experience in general. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I think, I, I think VR dying light would be uh, pretty amazing and also awesome. pretty nauseating. But... Oh, I'm sure I'd probably couldn't actually do it because I, I get nauseated in VR. Basically anything that's, that's too crazy. I, I get very nauseated and need to, uh, you know, slow down and go stare at a wall for a while. Yeah. It's very sad. But <laughs> what, what about you? Like, you know, so I think dying light is just one of those. For me, it was, a, it was a, a simple sort of game. Uh, but it just, it, it sort of, it nails every one of its elements. And, uh, it, it's greatness is just it adds up to being uh, so much more than than the sum of its parts. Uh, I'm curious if anything sort of fit that bill for you. Yeah, actually, I mean, I won't talk about it too much more, but Tomb Raider really kind of was that for me. Uh, Rise of the Tomb Raider. Okay. Uh, we talked about that last week quite a bit. Um, but, you know, also in, in sort of in that vein, the other sort of 
action-y, you know, sort of game that I have on my list uh, would be Bloodborne, believe it or not. Not a game that I, I, okay. I didn't... Uh, I had a love-hate relationship with Bloodborne. It was my first Souls game. It was the first game, and I usually, this might sound a little sad, I usually hate overly difficult games, like really hate them. I'm very much a, uh, you know, for me in my life, the things that are difficult skills for me to learn, I like learning Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, I like boxing, I like doing all these things physically. For me, I have an easier time learning physical skills than I do video game skills. I, I I don't know why. I guess it's just the way my brain is wired. My hands just aren't as uh, dexterous, I guess, as the rest of my body is. Um, so I was not expecting to be hooked by Bloodborne. Um, but I, I did. And I battled my way through that game. Sometimes I just sort of basically told myself I was just sort of hate-fucking that game. Like, I just <laughs> needed to get to the end uh, you know, and I did. I got to the end. I, I don't remember. If I, I, mean, I definitely did not go for any of the special endings or anything like that, but I did it. It was it was like running a marathon for me or something. Like, I just gotta get through it. There were definitely times I was enjoying myself. I think that game is impeccably well designed. Obviously, the combat is incredible. It's intuitive. It's It's hard, but in a very satisfying way. The art direction is outrageous, and it only gets more outrageous sort of as you go, and in a way that I like. I know in Idle Thumbs we called it, like, Victorian Ed Hardy. Uh, oh, wow. Like, you know, sort of the first areas of the game were a little bit of that, and then it becomes this, you know, uh, eldritch horror nightmare orgasm, basically. It's just, I really like that. I love games with, like, really outrageous sort of art styles. I think it's a lot of fun to be in those worlds. So And... Yeah, it did it for me, even though I hated it for it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I want to ask a little bit about that, because I think one one thing that puts me off, and it, it, now I have a little first-hand experience with this, like, I basically gave myself a day to see if I could get into a Souls game. And this was years ago, right? So I tried Demon's Souls, and this was when that became the uh, sort of official game of the then uh, so-called Brainy Sphere. Sure. Um and so there's this group of blog- bloggers and everything. Oh, I, are, I used yeah. to listen uh, oh, yeah. intently to the podcast, yes. <laughs> so I, I was like, I need to see what all the fuss is about. And I spent uh, the better part of a day playing Demon Souls. And it was really good. Like, I liked that there was this persistent sense of tension that I could take nothing for granted. Like, even encounters that I kind of knew how to get through flawlessly. It was like, yeah, but each time you've actually got to do it, right? You actually need to do those steps. And at any time, you yeah. could you could fail. Uh, a bit sort of like imagine uh, being an actor on stage uh, can be nerve-wracking, right? Oh, like, yes. you know, even even if it's your hundredth show, uh, you still have to do all those things, uh, you know, as good as ever, or the entire thing's going to fall apart. But what killed it for me is just I realized, like, my job basically is is sort of playing a ton of games, and I need to be I need to be sort of be hopping from game to game, and there's always stuff yeah. I'm in the middle of reviewing, and uh, also I don't want like games to be my entire life, and so I had this realization uh, as as I watched my character plummet to his death uh, because I'd gotten I, I gotten ambushed by some enemies and uh, sort of sidestepped off a cliff and uh, died really far into a level, and I was like, I can see why this is cool. And if there were world enough and time, <laughs> I would definitely play more of this game. Uh, but it's just, it's it's not going to be, uh, it's, it's not going to fit with, with how I want my gaming to work right now. It's not going to really fit with, with how I'm living my life. And so that was kind of the end of, of me and the Souls games. Uh, yeah. But what interests me is I hear a lot of people talking about the very punishing games. They're the they're sort of masochist gaming. These are games you 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 do to sort of test yourself as, as a gamer to see whether you still got the chops. Yeah. Um, and I'm curious, like, is that the appeal? Or is that a, a, a bit of an unfair characterization or over, oversimplification of what makes a game like Bloodborne uh, so good? For me, it had to do with how good the combat felt, and it was weird. It was I was playing it at a time where myself in real life as a as a boxer, I was getting to a point where I was able to sort of read opponents better. This was a weird and interesting sort of epiphany I had. I I almost gave up on the game at the second boss at Father Gascoigne. 
uh, because I was just having so much trouble dealing with sort of the environment and getting stuck on things in the environment and just getting just my face eaten, <laughs> literally and figuratively, yeah. I guess, by this game. And I was I was working with uh, I was both going to sort of normal boxing classes and doing a lot of sparring, and I was working with a, a separate trainer outside of my normal gym sparring. I was traveling around sparring with uh, you know mostly so I could be sparring with women my size because it's a little harder to find that <laughs> if you're rather small like I am. Uh, and I was just spending so much time on on sort of hand to hand boxing, you know, sort of sort of actually figuring out positioning and feeling comfortable in the ring. And something clicked while I was playing Bloodborne and thinking about mm -hmm. boxing, you know, as I was doing so much of that in my life, where it just made a lot more sense. Now, obviously, it's nowhere near one-to-one. -one. There are guns, there's monsters, there's whatever. It, it, you're not boxing in the game. But something about actually understanding physical space and learning how to manage physical space and learning how to be aware of what's in your environment it just clicked for me. And from then on in the game, I, I enjoyed myself. You know, I got frustrated at times, certainly, but generally enjoyed myself because I was getting at least some of that same feeling from playing Bloodborne as I was when I was doing well in boxing. You know, like the hits felt good in a way. Yeah. And, and the dodges felt great, even better than the hits, I think, uh, because, it you know, it makes your opponent go off balance and you can actually kind of go in for it. So it was just sort of the sensation of combat for me that that sort of nailed it for me, along with, of course, the fun window dressing of this this really yeah. overblown gothic world uh, that, you know, for me, I, I play games. Everybody plays games for different reasons, of course. I know that my my reasons are often more aligned with sort of aesthetics and really just enjoying being in a weird world or, you know, a place that doesn't exist on earth and, and exploring it and feeling like I'm somewhere else. That is a huge part of, you know, the appeal of playing games for me. So it kind of hit both of those things. Um, and more than any other game, uh, the combat felt like just good and, and, and uh, real, I guess, in, in ways that most games don't for me. Yeah, that's, that, that's one of my picks. <laughs> yeah, no, that's that's actually really interesting. I did, I had no idea like the that really says something of like the combat is anal was analogous to the things you were training uh, to to do like in in the real world. That's that's really fascinating. Uh, to yeah, me, I, that, that connection existed. It, it was pretty cool. I mean, you know, <laughs> I don't think I would last long in Yarnum, <laughs> but yeah. You know. Where the connection was made, it, it made sense to my little, you know, my little brain, I guess. Yeah, um. <laughs> I, I definitely, I, I definitely understand the, uh, the, the identification with setting and, and theme, I, I think for me, the, the, the focus on aesthetics is something I really identify with. Cause I think something I always sometimes get guilty, uh, feel a little guilty about, um, three moves ahead, but, uh, more generally just when it comes to stra like strategy games and board games, I need there to be some great aesthetic or more importantly, a great theme yeah. that the game is tied to. And in board games, the, the, the uh, like a, a good shorthand for this is like, do you, or do you not like the works of Reiner Knizia? Sure. <laughs> uh, who's this board game designer who makes these really abstract uh, board games that are basically, um, you know, to a degree like math puzzles, sure. uh, competitive math math puzzles, and he themes them, uh, you know, any number of things. Like this one's about ancient Egypt, and but it, 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 no, it's not. It's like none of the. It's just <laughs> it's just graphics sort of slapped onto the game, but the the mechanics and the the game itself are, are totally divorced from each other. Um, the theme and, and the mechanics are, are divorced from each other. Yeah. Uh, and for me, I, 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 I want my game to, on some level, either be telling a story or illuminating, uh, you know, a situation or something. And so I need that connection between, uh, you know, theme mechanics and usually a good theme is communicated with, uh, you know, w with great aesthetics. And I, I think that sort of reaches its logical conclusion for me in, in one of my favorite games this year, uh, which was Sunless Sea. Oh, yeah. Uh, did you play this? I did. I played quite a bit of it, but um, earlier on, when the combat was actually uh, sort of a weird turn-based yeah. uh, <laughs> yeah. thing. But yeah, yeah, I played quite a bit, and I, I really loved that game when I played it. Yeah, I... Uh... 
I, I like it, it's interesting the 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 arc I've been on with that game. Uh, first of all, I was unable to play it basically uh, once the weather turned warm. Uh, something huh. about that game, yeah, was a cold, rainy nights uh, kind of game. Or, or I played a lot of it when uh, we were all snowed in here in Boston. Sure, <laughs> uh, but you know, Sunless Sea is is this game where there isn't a whole lot of game to it in some ways, like. You sail your ship out of uh, fallen London in this in this weird underworld uh, where you know Victorian London was sucked underground into a realm of demons uh, and, and monsters and such, and you sail your ship out uh, into the into the underground sea, the Untersee. Yes. <laughs> and uh, at first, it's really repetitive because you just sort of go out. You do a couple things, and you're you're limited by two things: supplies and fuel. Uh, and so, if you if you overstretch your supplies, uh, I think your crew starts taking damage. If you run out of fuel, you're just dead in the water, uh, and you and you can't do anything. Yeah. Uh, and I've had a few ships. Uh, that, you know, it's it's a ro- it's got a roguelike element. If you lose a crew, if you lose a ship, uh, you start over. Uh, so, at first, it's really repetitive. You just sort of go out, do a simple thing, sail back, uh, play it safe, but really slowly the world begins to evolve and change and you start unlocking new adventures and you start sort of assembling a picture of this world. So at first you know nothing about the world. You don't know uh, really like what, like what, what is, what, what's around the Untersee? What, what is fallen London? Who runs it? Who are its enemies? Uh, and, and slowly you start filling in all these blank spaces, both on the map, but also in, in this sort of imagined territory of uh of the fallen london universe and it all proceeds in this really like sort of bleak um it's all got this vaguely like edward gory-esque vibe to it your ship your ship sort of sails out there into the darkness and this little puddle of light from its ship's light and your crew is slowly going mad and it's got all those um you know all those all, all those all those trademarks of like Cthulhu fiction and, and such, where like madness is always lurking at the lurking at the edges. But I just I just adored uh, the way you 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 repeatedly sort of went into the unknown and found crazy new things. And a lot of that a lot of credit goes to the writing, of course. And that's the thing, yes. like you know, the art's really simple. The, the universe, the world is pretty static. But you go to these ports and you have these little like choose your own adventure uh, things that pop up. But they are so beautifully and elegantly written, uh, both evocative and charming, that it just became this this game that I just loved. Like it was a game you curled up with, right? Exactly. Yes. And there's so few games like that, Uh, and and this was one of them. And so like you know, as the weather has gotten bad again. Uh, I have, I've, I've found myself uh, returning to the Intersea. Uh and it's, it, it's, it, it's still special. It's, it's still a really special game and uh, it came out early this year, but you know, when I think of, of peak experiences uh, throughout this year, I, I have to return to Sunless Sea and, and really give it a strong recommendation. Uh, Cause it's, you know, just as a work of, just as a work of writing and, and evocative atmosphere, uh, it's kind of unparalleled. Yeah, I completely agree with you on that. Like, it, it's, man, I had so much fun. Even doing a lot of the same missions over and over and just sort of picking different options just to see what would happen. It, charming is absolutely the word. And curling up with that game, God, it was was so wonderful. And there there is a game that I, I won't go on and on about because I actually haven't finished it yet, but it was one of the highlights of my year that I sort of like to curl up with. Uh, and that was actually read-only memories, uh, sort of cyberpunk, uh, queer cyberpunk adventure game by the the folks at Midboss. Um, and I, I couldn't obviously write about it or, or do any sort of coverage on it because th- those are friends of mine who, who made this game. Um, but it, it has a very just charming, inclusive, beautiful art style. And it, it spun a good yarn, I guess. Uh, and I am such a sucker for, for a good adventure game. And I I very much consider myself like a student of adventure games at this point, since I'm trying to sort of make them a little bit, you know, tiny little baby, baby steps sort of adventure games. So I've been fascinated by by the form. I've always enjoyed them. But I will say on that note, my number one game of the year, uh, hands down. Uh, and, and it wasn't an easy situation because I had, as I will, I will tell you, my top three were Witcher 3, Soma, and this game. Uh, okay. So it wasn't it wasn't easy to kind of completely uh, wrestle with that, but in the end, at the end of the day, Dropsy 
was my favorite Whoa. game of 2015. That's right, Dropsy. Okay, the aesthetic for that one put me <laughs> off so hard. Like I'm sure, th- yeah. I, I actually can't stand that sort of cute, ugly. Th- I don't know what the word is for that aesthetic, but oh, it's yeah. it's like it's attempting to be both cute but ultimately repulsive. Oh, totally. Uh, and I couldn't. I I can't handle it. I hate it. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I think it's 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 definitely part of the. Of the of the game, the fact that it looks like that, like melted Legos, a little <laughs> bit. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a game. Honestly, at, at first glance, it looks like, oh, okay, fine. And and, and I, you know, I, I interviewed Jay Tholen, who made the game, one of the developers who made the game, you know, sort of the primary person behind it, writer, developer, designer, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, who who kind of the idea did come from this, like, let's make a creepy clown and make it funny that he hugs people. Uh, but it ended up being, you know, he's kind of said, you know, as I matured, uh, you know, he was very young when he sort of started thinking about this game. But as he sort of grew up, he started, his sensibilities really changed. And this game is just a really earnest and sort of mundane and grounded exploration of what it is to just want to be a really good person who really cares. And even though everybody else in the world doesn't necessarily care, Dropsy does. And it's like just this heartbreaking. It is in a lot of ways. It is heartbreaking, but wonderful. And something that just appeals to me on every level. You know, I, I constantly in my life, I always want to be the better person, the nicer person, the little hero, even if everybody else sucks. I I, I have this complex about me, I guess. Uh, I don't look like a scary clown, which is probably good for me and helps me in my life. But this is a game about someone who just wants to be better than everybody around them and just wants to make things better. And that's incredible and wonderful and sweet. It's also really, really well designed. The puzzles in this game, you know, it's a very traditional adventure game, uh, but everything in the game, there's no language. Everything is sort of done in a sort of a glyph language. Uh, so figuring everything out in terms of the puzzles, it, it always just hits that sweet spot. Again, like I was talking about this last week uh, about sort of the Tomb Raider tombs or a couple weeks ago, uh, but it just hits this sweet spot where you just sort of intuitively figure things out as you naturally go through the motions of, okay, let's, you know, let's try this, let's try that. It doesn't feel like too much trial and error. It just feels like you kind of yeah. know where they want to go with it. And the way Jay talked about approaching puzzle design was was just sort of from a storytelling point of view, uh, which I thought was very smart. Uh, just such a well done, tiny, personal, earnest, loving little game that Completely swept me off my feet, and I adored it from beginning to end. Really, really loved that game. Uh, so, yeah, that's, right, that's my number get, one. <laughs> maybe I need to get over my, uh, oh, God, I'm actually one of the one of the people in that story, right? Rejecting Dropsy uh, for, for, the, for, for his for his. You look. won't give him a hug. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, I think for me, I don't know if this is my favorite game of the year, but... For like sheer magical moments, I think what yielded more than anything else this year for me was Rocket League. Nice. Yeah. Uh, and part of that is I first encountered Rocket League uh, at my buddy Julian Murdoch's house, uh, who's nice. a, a regular on Three Moves Ahead uh, and also on the Gamers with Jobs conference call. And, you know, so my my introduction to it was was playing it on a couch with, with him and his son, uh, Peter. And... I think there could not be anything better than like playing that game couch co-op with your like surrogate family yeah. uh, and a little kid there sort of being super into it. <laughs> uh, but you know, that was, that was great. Cause there's it was this, it was, it's a perfect game for, for sort of family time, right. And just hanging out together and you know, the matches aren't too long. Uh, they follow a, a reliably, uh, you know, if it's, a, if it's a bad game, you're getting blown out. It'll be over in five minutes. If you're, yeah. you know, if it's, it's a really close game, uh, that 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 five minutes will will stretch on forever. Uh, it'll be amazing. But <laughs> the other thing is just like Rocket League. It 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 takes it takes ten seconds to figure out what you're supposed to do. It's soccer with cars. It takes no yeah. time at all to like. Okay, I get it. Uh, but learning how to play it well, and then sort of discovering strategies, uh, and and how to work with a team, and sort of get that sixth sense of like being able to read what other people are going to do based on shared understanding of how the game is going to work. Uh, all of that is, is just absolutely tremendous. So it's, it's a game that like, yeah, you'll, you'll figure it out in, you know, two minutes, what you're supposed to do. 
and then you can spend like you know at this point like a year yeah. uh, figuring out how to how to actually play it competently. But the other thing is, uh, I just when I think about this game, I think about overtime and the sheer number of times I have been playing with a friend. Uh, and I think two v two is probably my favorite mode. Uh, maybe three v three is a close second, but but the two v two games, uh, just you and one other person uh, taking on a, a team of two, you're so totally dependent on each other. You know, you're in that foxhole together. Yeah. And I have had a few games, and the one that sticks out in my mind was Julian and I were playing at his house, um, and we got into this overtime. And it was the last game we were playing before we were all supposed to go out for dinner and everything, whatever. Um, and overtime is sudden death. And usually sudden death will occur within the first minute of overtime or oh, so. Man. Yeah. Not in this case. <laughs> uh, overtime went on. I have no idea how long. I know the sun <laughs> set while we were playing overtime. Wow. Uh, like this play and, and play never stops. So you're always, you're always in it. Uh, so Overtime began, and then at some point we started to become aware of just how long we'd been playing. And suddenly we couldn't lose this game, right? That, that was unacceptable because now it's not, oh, it was this five-minute game of Rocket League, and then we're on to the next thing. No. This was this epic, like, overtime stand oh, uh, that, you know, by God, we were going to win. And so the rest of the family's like, okay, well, no, actually, they weren't even, like, tapping their foot, like, we got to get going. Because everyone watching the game was super into it, too. Like, it, awesome. it sort of cast the spell over the room where, like, people are screaming and cheering as, like, we make crazy saves. Uh, you know, we make shots, and they just bounce off the post, and people are, like, howling in despair. Uh, and it was, I, I think overtime probably went on. It broke 10 minutes easily. Uh, it 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 might have come up on fifteen or twenty, uh, but in the end we did lose. We lost. Uh, oh, we we no. just we we took a shot. It bounced, uh, and it set up a perfect uh, return return shot for them to win the game, uh, which was heartbreaking. But you know who cares? Because at the end of the day, we'd had this unbelievably vivid, unforgettable, intense gaming experience that like. You can't counterfeit it. And a lot of games spend a lot of effort trying to make you feel like you're in the middle of something epic, something yeah. momentous. Rocket League just sort of tosses that off offhand. It's just something that can happen at any time. Uh, and just just by virtue of, of how those systems to go together and the simple structure of those matches. Uh, so <clears throat> Rocket League, just, a, just an absolute favorite experience of mine. Uh, this year, one of my one of just just a a creator of so many great memories, uh, just one of my oh, top man. games by far. So so good. Uh, but speaking of a very memorable moments, this is a completely utterly different kind of game. But uh, sort of my number two on my list, uh, very very close second was Soma this year. Um, mm -hmm. For exactly that reason, not not Rocket League, but because it's so memorable, because its story and sort of what its story actually meant. Uh, stuck in my brain completely. So you probably know this about me, Rob, and, and I think most people, if you know me from Thumbs, know this, but I am a sucker for sort of uh, science fiction that asks big questions. Yeah, I love Prometheus, even though that movie fails on so many levels, because yeah. at its core, it's a movie about why are we here? What is human nature? You know, that sort of thing. Those questions, any sort of piece of fiction that uh, honestly tries to you know, come at those questions is something I will automatically be interested in because I just really, really enjoy sort of chewing on the psychological fat of those questions. And Soma is a game, it's a horror game set in a sort of undersea lab where something has gone horribly wrong, of course. Uh, so it's, it, you know, its setting is a horror setting, but it is much more a psychological and philosophical science fiction game than it is really just sort of a monsters are chasing you game. Yeah, there are monsters chasing you. Yeah. That's not really the point, quote unquote. Um, the sort of central question in the game about uh, bodies and what it is to be human and the nature of the mind, those things are just so well presented. Uh, I think it's a very well written game. These are not easy topics to write about uh, with any kind of grace, and I think it pulls it off really well. There are some missteps. There are a few, you know, corny lines here and there, but in general, uh, I think the folks uh, 
at uh, I believe it's Frictional Games. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah. That Frictional really, really pull this off, and they really make uh, what I think is quite an achievement, uh, which is a genuinely thought-provoking, well-done piece of science fiction uh, done effectively in a in a horror game, uh, and. The last scene of that game and, and a few of the other sort of pivotal uh, scenes in that game and, and some of the environments are just going to stick in my brain uh, for a really, really long time. And I will always love games that do that to me, uh, unless obviously it's sticking in my brain for terrible reasons. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> Uh, so I think we'll leave our, our top games discussion there. Uh, I could go on. I've got, there's like eight more games that I could happily discuss and maybe totally. we'll talk about them, uh, you know, further into the new years as, as we get a chance to bring them up. But for now, I think we need to open up our mailbag, uh, for the first, uh, weekend correspondence of 2016. Yes. Uh, so our first email is from Bear from Asheboro, North Carolina. Awesome. Hey, Weekend. In middle school, a friend of mine, Mike, had told me about this fantastic PC game he owned, Indiana Jones and the Fate of Atlantis. I had never played a LucasArts adventure game before, so he offered to bring it over to my house so that we could install install it and play through it together. We loaded up the game and were both incredibly disappointed to learn that the crappy sound card on my PC wouldn't play the full sounds and speech pack. Mike, being the great friend that he was, said, It's no problem. I'll just read all the voices. I remember how they all sound. He then proceeded to do a spot-on performance of the entire dialogue with all the voices and accents for the different characters. To this day, I am still disappointed when hearing the actual voice acting in the game because it doesn't hold a candle to Mike's performance that day. It is one of my fondest gaming memories. Do you have any examples of needing to somehow make up for technical problems or other unforeseen situations with games? Oh, well, I I want a friend like Mike. <laughs> now, this made me think of something that's not exactly a technical problem with the game, but it is sort of using sound and voice from a game in an unusual way. Uh, so when I was 12 or 13, and maybe a little longer than that, I used to do... Uh, quote unquote sketch comedy. I had an old VCR, I had an old recorder, and I sort of used to, uh, myself, my best friend, and my sister used to do sketches. A lot of them had to do with Star Wars or whatever movies we were watching. It was uh, the nerdiest thing in the universe. And we used music and sound effects and speech from games to sort of complement our, um, our uh, sketches. So for a Star Wars sketch in uh, good old March of 1997, I remember it clearly, we used all these sound effects from sort of the beginning of the game, Shadows of the Empire, and all the uh, the sort of like little, uh, like little grunts and things uh, from Dash Rendar in the game to complement our physical performances uh, playing a, a, a Star Wars skit. Uh, we, we did this for a long time. We used the Donkey Kong Country soundtracks for sound effects and music in our sketches. We used all sorts of goofy things like that that we, we thought just made it so much better and more professional. Of course it didn't. It, it looked like uh, hilarious garbage, but uh, that was the first thing I thought of with regards to performance and sort of using games in that way. Okay, so mine, the, I've got two answers here. One is um, I have weirdly fond memories of the art of getting PC games to run under DOS. Sure, sure. Uh, like, I remember, like, I had the holy boot disk of of, of Victory, uh, basically, which is, <laughs> like, the, the problem is there were a lot of early PC games that required a lot of conventional memory. And so even if you had a ton of memory on your PC, uh, what you didn't have was a 600 uh, kilobyte or greater cache file uh, that this game would draw from. And so it didn't. It didn't use all the other memory you had. It only cared about this one particular like memory cache. And if you didn't have enough of it, which using a modern PC you usually didn't, uh, you couldn't run a PC, a PC game. So, uh, yeah. So I had like like working to like hack these things and get them into shape so they could run on a PC that I that I had at the time uh, was a it was it's a terrible experience. But I'm weirdly like <laughs> happy looking back on it and like the feeling of. 
the thrill of victory when those games actually launched, uh, thanks to this one like boot disc that had that had uh, freed up a miraculous 618k Ooh. of uh, memory, uh, <laughs> enabled me to play games like Wing Commander and Syndicate and all this great stuff. Uh, the other thing, I guess, uh, and I just like this is a memory I'd completely forgotten until this question came up. Uh, I had a fate what a favorite war game uh, when I was young, uh, Fields of Glory. Uh, which was a Napoleonic war game, uh, kind of a precursor to the Total War series, really. But for whatever reason, it stopped working. I think my PC might have been broken at the time or something. So suddenly I couldn't play my favorite game. It just wasn't working. Didn't have access to it. So I built the game out of army men awesome. and paper and building blocks and blankets in my bedroom. <laughs> That's so good. Oh yeah, it was it was ridiculous, but it was awesome. Uh, and I, I like had the the two armies lined up and started maneuvering them around this map and stuff, and sort of making the sound effects myself. And I start trying to like recreate the Battle of Waterloo oh, uh, nice. on the under this like you know gray blanket uh, with like building blocks creating contoured hills, uh, and all these soldiers, these toy soldiers with like labels brigade division uh, <laughs> next to them. It was absurd. Oh, that's so awesome. God, I love that stuff. We have a question from Wyatt. Wyatt says, Hey, Rob and Danielle. Love the podcast. Still an avid listener of 3MA and Idle Thumbs. Thank you, Wyatt. My question is about the morality and effects of using gray market distribution sites, such as Green Man Gaming, G2A, uh, etc. Do purchasing new games at release at discounted prices hurt the developers in the long run? And how will this affect other retailers going into 2016? Uh, so the thing is like green man gaming is just one of those things that I, <sighs> there's always a little something sketchy about them. And when you have like major developers and publishers saying like, don't buy this from them because we have no idea where they got their keys. Uh, yeah, that kind of gray market stuff isn't great. Uh, because you know, like a lot of, a lot of these developers are depending really to get their return on investment. Uh, to, to to sell those sixty dollar copies yeah. and then sort of start cutting into that, uh, so that you can sort of, sort of be a little parasitic, honestly. Uh, not you, the buyer, but like the person selling it is being a little parasitic on uh, sort of the way the the industry is structured right now, and uh, the way different markets operate. So that's the downside. But honestly, I don't think that's the real problem. I think the real issue uh, that, that's facing developers in the PC space right now, especially, is that Steam has trained everybody to wait. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Activision and Blizzard have actually been pretty smart about this. They discount their very, their games very slowly and very rarely. And so, you know, if, if you want to play the, the latest Call of Duty or even a recent Call of Duty, you're still going to have to shell out that $50, $60, uh, you know, yeah. even a year or so after release. But everyone else has created a situation where if I want to play a new game, uh, you know, I could buy it right now for 60 or I could wait. Just like six weeks, yeah. just like six weeks, and it'll be $45. And if I wait six more weeks, it'll be $35. And so I think that's the, that's the real danger is we, we sort of solved the, 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 the piracy problem in a lot of ways. At least I think we've solved the, the, the piracy problem in a lot of ways. But instead of creating a sort of like dreamy long, long tail scenario where games just sell forever and ever, we've also trained a ton of people who would probably be eager enough to play your game for full price uh, to sort of say, well, all I need is a little bit of patience and I will be rewarded with a much cheaper game. Uh, that's also going to have a, a much smaller margin uh, for, for that developer and that publisher. So I can't blame any consumers for, for following this behavior. That's how I behave because we're, we're conditioned. We know it works, Yeah. but I think it's, it, it's kind of a trap uh, that the, that we we've sort of seen the industry fall into uh, now, which is that, you know, we know that price is temporary, and uh, I, you know, I, I think it, it generates more sales and gets more people playing your game. But I think there's also a cost there. I don't know as much about the gray market, but uh, I don't, I don't yeah. either. I, I, I my understanding is a lot of those keys come from uh, like non EU, non uh, North American mm, regions, sure, uh, and they're sort of resold uh, on the on these sites. And it's not like yeah, it's not illegal. Uh, but it is gray market, and I have yeah. seen a number of developers sort of, you know, curious where those keys are coming from. Uh, sure. Because obviously, like, 
you know, I think the Green Man offered like a forty dollar Witcher deal, uh, like on launch week. Uh, and yeah. you know, if something seems too good to be true, yeah, it probably is. And I think that that was the case there. Uh, our next question uh, comes from Jolly zero four five one. Well done, Jolly. Okay. Hey, Robin Danielle. What was your favorite soundtrack or song in a game this year and why? For me, it's a toss-up between the perfectly used title card music in Tales from the Borderlands and the lo-fi folk music that permeates Life is Strange. As a musician, I've had way more fun playing and learning songs from these soundtracks just because of their connection to two of my favorite games of the year. So how about you? Uh, I think for me, uh, the, the, the music, the, the game music, there's two games with great music that stand out for me. I'm uh, not sure I can name a single track. Um, the entire soundtrack for everyone's gone to the rapture Oh, yeah. or everybody's gone to the rapture, uh, is an amazing soundtrack. I don't think the game's very good. Actually. <laughs> I, I think, I think that soundtrack really makes kind of a flat experience, uh, really seem to soar. Love that. And I loved, loved the music in rebel galaxy, uh, oh, which has yeah. a really cool, like, uh, you know, acid rock, uh, firefly, uh, vibe to it. It's, it's terrific. How about you, Danielle? Oh, man. Uh, so I was thinking about this question, and there is a song that stands out to me. Uh, there's a soundtrack that stands out to me and a song. And the song is in Her Story, which is uh, a game I also really, really loved this year. Um, you know, there's a song in it where one of the characters is singing uh, The Wind and the Rain. If you've played that game, you know what I'm talking about. If you don't, I probably sound like a, a crazy person. But it is sort of a very chilling uh, interesting moment in that game, a uh, fun, pulpy detective story, very much worth, worth your time. And that song is a, just really a great pivotal moment in that game. Uh, in terms of soundtrack, uh, probably my favorite soundtrack uh, was Read Only Memories this year. Uh, just, you know, that like fun kind of, uh, chiptune sort of thing, a little cyberpunk flavor to it. I'm a, I'm a sucker for that sci-fi stuff. So I, I really, really enjoyed that this year. Awesome. So I think that's probably all from our mailbag this week for our, our very first uh, 2016 mailbag. So we should go into our weekend projects. So Rob, what have you been watching or reading or just super into lately? Uh, so I have been into a couple things. Uh, I just read The Spy Who Came In From The Cold Oh, nice. uh, by, by John Le Carre. And I got into that because I, you know, I, I saw... Uh, I saw Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy and rewatched it again a few months ago. And it's just a favorite movie. It's, it's a wonderful film. So that made me curious. And I, I'm slowly reading through uh, the entire series. And I, I think the, I think the series is, is fantastic. Not just the ones that everybody knows, but I think even like the, the, the first, uh, the early smiley novels, which are really more mur uh, murder mysteries than anything. I think they're all terrific. And then Lacar has this gift for these sort of like haunting asides and observations that the characters make. Uh, so it's, you know, there's the, there are these spy stories, but then they're also these really lyrical, like meditations on, on modern life. Uh, and, and spy from spy who came in from the cold is, you know, kind of a masterpiece of that because it's, you know, it, it, it's about a, a spy who goes into, um, deep cover basically mm -hmm. for, for a long, long-term uh, deception operation against uh, the, the, e the East Germans. And it's about him living this sort of half life uh, for a while while he, he waits for the next stage of his, of his mission to begin. Uh, and in, while he's doing that, he's just sort of sinking through uh, post-war British society uh, really. And, and sort of it's, it's this look at how, how sort of, gray and 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 closed off uh you know life in england could seem at this mm -hmm. time uh how how limited horizons could seem how limited possibilities could seem and uh the scarcity of uh, of genuine feeling and genuine connection uh and that sort of that 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 feeling runs through the novel and actually animates a lot of the decisive action later uh so it's a beautiful book and also a really, really uh, troubling one, uh, a really haunting one. Uh, so that, that's something I've been I've been really into, uh, and it's it's staying with me uh, even nice. you know a few days after I finished it. The other thing I've I've been into uh, is a documentary on Netflix right now called Last Days in Vietnam, hmm. uh, which was I think an American experience documentary uh, produced by PBS, but. 
it's about the evacuation of Saigon in 1975. And uh, it's just a fantastic documentary because it's this, I think a lot of us have seen sort of the iconic images of, of the fall of Saigon and the end of American involvement in Vietnam, right? The helicopter going off the side of the ship, uh, you know, the people, you know, streaming onto the embassy roof, yeah. uh, things like that. Uh, this is, this sort of demythologizes a lot of that. A lot of things, we, the things we think we know about or the things we think we saw, uh, we didn't, we didn't understand the correct meaning, the correct context. Uh, but it's also just a really gorgeous and gripping story about what people were were willing to do in those final days to to get the hell out uh, as as the realization dawned that the Americans were leaving that South Vietnam was was going to go down and everyone literally everybody that had trusted the Americans to to, to be there and had worked with the Americans uh, was you know going to find themselves on a prisoner and execution list yeah and uh, you know, so it's 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 a really it's a really powerful and troubling story. You got like Marine embassy guards, um, you know, frantically trying to trying to get people on helicopters, and the the ambassador to Vietnam refusing to leave uh, because he knows once he's off the ground, uh, the helicopters are going to stop running, uh, and so they just keep trying to get people out of the embassy. Uh, but it's just you got all these all these amazing uh, all these amazing anecdotes and vignettes. Uh, the, from from both uh, you know American service members who were over there, and then also uh, Vietnamese refugees, uh, some of whom made it, so, some of whom didn't until much much later. But yeah. it is it is unforgettable, and uh, just amazing archival footage. Highly recommended. Uh, it's it's an important documentary and a, and a really beautiful one. Wow, I uh, my pick this week is uh, the least serious spy thing uh, you can imagine. I mean, not about uh, Vietnam, but <laughs> regarding spying, uh, I've gotten really into Archer Vice, the fifth season of Archer, uh, which was once a sort of spy spoof show, uh, but the fifth season is much more about uh, the the gang. You know, the <laughs> the folks who were in ISIS are are now uh, trying to start their own drug cartel. And it is, of course, they're hilariously inept at it. And it's funny. And, you know, the, sh- the show, I've always loved Archer. It's always been a really, just just a pleasure to watch. It's funny. It's goofy. It's it's sharp. It's it's fairly smart. You know, it's, it's certainly not above some, some low blows every now and then. But in general, the, the level of the writing uh, is pretty sharp and funny. Oh, I, I absolutely adore <laughs> Archer. Uh, I'm, yeah. I'm curious because I ended up not liking that season too much. I, I missed mm. the, uh, the the spy stuff, and I thought there were some there were some good moments in that season. But uh, this is the season where where Lana's uh, pregnant, right? Lana is pregnant. Uh, Cheryl is a country star. Pam <laughs> is know, on coke. Pam uh, is on lots of coke. It's yeah. it's a complete. Goofy just departure. Now I'm only halfway through, so I, I don't have uh, you know I don't have my opinions solidified on this season as opposed to others. And also, what's a little weird is I haven't watched Archer in years. You oh, know, really? I think I watched um, you know season four whenever it aired, and I think it was God close at least a year ago. I think. Um, well, you're the, only a season behind, so it couldn't have been that yeah, long. Maybe I'm just I've just had a lot of <laughs> changes in my life, yeah. and I think it's been ten years, and it hasn't. Um, but it just feels like it's been a while, at least for me, uh, that I've been watching it. And I'm really enjoying it. Uh, but no, I don't quite know if I like it as much as, as you know, regular Archer, so to speak, or spy Archer. Um, I, I do applaud the creators for going in a completely goofy direction. I mean, you know, they, they clearly were afraid of things getting stale after yeah. a while of doing the spy shtick. So I, I applaud them for, for you know, having the, the guts to kind of go out on a limb. Um but, you know, I'm, I'm enjoying it so far. So I, I will probably report in with a, a more detailed uh, Archer report. The Vice report, uh, yeah. if you will, <laughs> in yeah, a I, subsequent I, week. <laughs> I, I like that season. I think one thing I, I really enjoyed there was uh, it is the season, I think, where it started to become more pronounced. The, the show's sort of inner sweetness uh, began sure. to really yeah. start to show through. As you see, like, Archer's weirdly uh, protective side coming out towards towards Lana. Yeah, uh, and you start to realize that he's a really tone deaf asshole, but yeah. he's not a monster that but you he cares. Yeah, yeah, 
so I, I, I do. I, I that that season holds a special place in my heart. Uh, I do. I, I, I love all Archer. Uh, but yeah, I think I'm happiest when when they're off doing spy stuff. So with that, I think it's time for us to head out and enjoy our weekends. This episode of Idle Weekend was produced by Chris Remo and hosted on the Idle Thumbs Network. You can learn more about the show at idleweekend.net. Send us questions for our weekend correspondence at questions at idleweekend.net. And uh, to keep up with the latest from us, follow us on Twitter at Idle Weekend. And be sure to review and rate us on iTunes. And please, please uh, be sure to tell your friends about us and uh, get some of your, your video game podcast buddies uh, listening to Idle Weekend. It, it means a lot, and we, we love doing the show for you guys. It means the world to us. And thank you so much for listening and being here with us and letting us into your ears in some form. <laughs> so for Rob Zachney, this is Danielle Riendo. Happy New Year and enjoy the finest of idle weekends. All right. Awesome.